0: As a background to my talk today, perspectives on the future of fossil-based human origins research, I want to tell you that I'm a paleoanthropologist who's been conducting field research for the last 30 years in one of the remotest areas of the world and collecting fossils of our ancient ancestors. With this fieldwork experience, I wanted to share with you some perspectives, um, my hopes and concerns, of course on the future of fossil-based human origins research. Today, we have thousands of fossils representing more than 20 early human ancestor species. All of the ancestor species older than two million years were found in Africa. So when we go back in history, remember what Charles Darwin predicted in 1871 in his book, The Descent of Man, where he said the last shared ancestor of apes and humans lived in tropical Africa. Now at that time, he didn't have any fossils in hand to investigate, but he was, he was right. And his prediction came to be realized with the discovery of the tongue child in 1924, which is about 43 years after he died. So after the first discovery from South Africa of the town child, so many more discoveries were made in so many um, cave sites, within South Africa. And the search for early human ancestor fossils continued uh, further north to Eastern Africa. And uh, a number of significant discoveries were made in the 1960s and 1970s in Tanzania, Kenya, and um, Ethiopia. So when we look at the distribution of paleontological sites in Africa today, this is what it looks like. As you see on the map, there are sites in Southern Africa, which has been known since the 1920s. Uh, and then you have a group of sites in Eastern Africa, which, is, which, is, which have been known since the 1950s and 1960s. So historically, most of these Eastern African sites have been investigated since the early 1960s. And a number of fossils that are really critical in our understanding of uh, human evolution has been found from, from these sites. But when we look at how many of those sites were actually discovered since 2000, there are only a few. And the reason why I mentioned that is because that is directly relevant to my, my talk today. So the fossil record that was available until the 1980s indicated the presence of at least 10 or so species early human ancestor species, including Lucy species Australopithecus Francis which was thought to be the earliest human ancestor at 3 million years ago. And in terms of the phylogenetic relationships, Australopithecus afarensis stood as the ancestor of all the human lineages, one that led to the genus Homo and the other one that led to what we call the robust lineage. And this was as simple as what we could see in the fossil record uh, until the 1980s. with only 10 species known in the fossil record, our evolutionary history was not really that complicated. But what we see in the 1990s and early 2000, which, by the way, are usually referred to as golden decades of paleoanthropology, we see a number of new human ancestor species discovered, uh, both from old sites and also new sites, almost doubling the number of uh, known species in the fossil record. Not only that, but we also have the earliest record of human ancestors pushed all the way back to more than 6 million years ago. So this time, our evolutionary history became much more complicated. So in addition to all these new discoveries, we also see advances in analytical methods. 3D imaging became part and parcel of paleontological studies, various modelings and sophisticated quantitative methods with advances in genetics and also uh, advances in geospatial sciences really helped paleoanthropology to make significant discoveries, new ideas, and test uh, existing hypotheses with all these new um, analytical methods. But the problem is all of these advances, even though they've helped us generate more data and provided us with access to more information that, than, that we wouldn't have been able to see with our naked eyes, none of these advances helped us increase the actual fossil sample sizes or fill the temporal gaps that are apparent in the fossil record. So this is where I really want to emphasize, particularly in terms of what what does finding new sites mean uh, in terms of our understanding of understanding of the, our evolutionary history. Now, the Alpha region of Ethiopia has a unique place in paleoanthropology. Uh, in this region, we have Ancient fossiliferous deposits that pretty much document um, the last six million years of our evolutionary history. And Middle Awash, that you see at the bottom here, um, is one example in this regard, where we have a sequence of deposits that sample the last six million years. But we will see that there are like some interruptions in the sequence. And without filling those interruptions, those temporal gaps, uh, it would be very difficult to really understand the entire history of our evolution. So, paleoanthropologists have been investigating some some of the sites since the early 1970s, um, old sites, and also looking for new sites. So, we know that Middle Awash, Gona, and Hadar have been investigated since the 1970s, and they've produced hundreds of early human fossils and also associated vertebrate fossils that tell us about the environment in which these early human ancestors lived. But there are still some gaps in the fossil record that we really want to find by locating new sites, because it's less likely that we will have those gaps filled from the existing sites, especially when we know that paleontologists have been working at the sites for more than 50 years. So finding new sites, like one example that I can mention to you is Lady Guerrero. Lady Guerrero is a site that was discovered after 2000. And... Now we have the earliest fossil evidence of the genus Homo, which is our genus, from 2.8 million years ago. Previously, we thought that the earliest, the earliest record of Homo is about 2.5, 2.4 million years ago. So that's, that's because of the discovery of a new site that we now know that the genus Homo appeared in the fossil record much earlier than previously thought. Another new site that I would like to talk about is Ranzo Mille, which is where, where, where I'm gonna spend more time because that's the site that I've been working at for the last uh, 15 years. So for almost 15 years, I've been participating with the Middle Project as a member. Uh, and during those years, I have come to understand the geological history of Middle uh, the temporal gaps that are missing within the six, almost 6 million years record of our history at Middle Awash. And it's, it's always been my interest to actually see, uh, like look for new sites where we can actually fill some of those gaps that we have in beautiful sequences like in the Middle Awash. But of course, I also wanted to have a site where I can work for, you know, as, as a career in, in the future. And that's when I decided to do some survey and exploration in the northern part of the Alpha Rift. And I spent about two years uh, before I finally located uh, Oranzu Mille. So those two sites are probably two of the most significant new sites that have been added to the older sites within the Alpha Rift system. And Oranzu Mille um, has a lot of surprises in terms of how we understand our evolutionary history, particularly during the middle Pliocene between four and three million years ago. And because of the discovery of this new site, we added more than 200 fossil specimens of early human ancestors, ranging in age from 3.8 all the way to 3.2 million years ago. Although most of these are isolated teeth, uh, we have a cranium that you see on the screen, which is about 3.8 million years old. We have numerous maxillae, the upper jaw and lower jaw, mandibles, postcrania and a partial skeleton, and including this wonderful uh, partial foot that you see here called the Bortelli foot. Now, each of these discoveries have their own impact on how we understand our evolutionary history. So the work that we have done so far at um, at Oranzu Mille shows us that there were at least four different species identified from the sequences that are sampled by almost 800,000 years. One is Australopithecus anamensis, which has been known from Kenya and Ethiopia, uh, Middle Awash, um, but it was known only up until 3.9 million years ago. So its a discovery at Warunzu at 3.8 million years ago tells us that anamensis lived longer than previously thought. We have a partial foot from Waranzo That is really interesting because it shows opposable big toe, million years ago, a time when the famous Australopithecus afrensis was roaming, you know, the deserts of, well, not deserts, but the the lands in the Afar region, and here we have a species that had kept its opposable big toe and living at the same time in close geographic proximity. Another surprise that we have from Warren is this new species called Australopithecus dei ramada, which is only known from Warren so far. And then we also have a partial skeleton of Australopithecus afarensis from 3.6 million years ago. Now, Australopithecus afarensis is really well known from Hadar, a site about 30 miles to the south. What is really important about this partial skeleton is that it provided us with a lot more information about some aspects of the biology of and anatomy of Australopithecus afarensis, particularly in the areas of the shoulder girdle, and also the rib cage. So this, speci- this specimen helped us understand uh, better in terms of some of the paleobiology of Australopithecus afarensis. So when we look at the combined um, evidence, fossil evidence from Moranzo what we realize is we're talking about how do we fill those missing stratigraphic gaps that we have in the fossil record. And Wuranzimile, one of the things that it did was to fill one of these gaps that existed between 3.6 and 3.9 million years ago. So this, is, this was one of the temporal gaps we had in the fossil record, and the discoveries from Wuranzimile uh, filled that gap. So this is really important. The second thing is how the partial skeleton of Australopithecus afarensis actually um, helped us better understand some of the paleobiology of Australopithecus afarensis. And it also happens to be the oldest partial skeleton of an adult individual of Australopithecus afarensis at 3.6 million years ago. From Oranzo mille, we also have this new species, Australopithecus de Remeda, which happens to overlap in time with the well-known Australopithecus afarensis, which is well sampled at Hadar, but we also have a good sequence of, for the presence of Australopithecus afarensis at Oranzo mille. So this new addition is also something that we know because of the discovery of this new site that resulted from survey and exploration in early 2000. But what was really surprising in terms of discoveries from Moranzomilia was this partial foot, which again, temporarily overlaps with what we have identified as Australopithecus de Remeda and also Australopithecus Francis. Now at this time, geological time, about 3.4, 3.5 million years ago, Australopithecus instance, was the most dominant species. And we wouldn't have expected in a million years that we will find a hominin with a pose of a big toe at this time. So here is another surprise that finding new sites and finding new fossils brings about. So the Bortelli partial foot is really significant because some hominid species retained opposable big toe as late as 3.4 million years ago. And it also tells us that there were multiple modes of bipedal locomotion, locomotive adaptations among mid Pliocene hominids. These are new revelations that we see from Horanzo Mille. But in addition to increasing the sample size, filling some of the temporal gaps that we have, they also raise some interesting questions in terms of how these early human ancestors Coexisted, for example, how did related homin taxa manage to coexist in close geographic proximity at Ouarzazate, not at nearby Hadar? Because at Hadar, we have only one species, which is uh, Australopithecus afarensis. But at Ouarzazate we have a species represented by the Bourtelle foot, uh, another species Australopithecus deyiremeda, and we also have Australopithecus afarensis. So we start hypothesizing in terms of what are the ways that this hominids could have coexisted. And we can talk about adaptive radiation, we can talk about how they probably partitioned the habitat and whether they had some differences in foraging strategy and differences in locomotive adaptation and so forth. So this new site opened up not only new questions that we need to address, but also helped us fill some of the gaps that were apparent in the fossil record. And also, Another question that comes up from this discoveries is like, which species could be the best candidate for the ancestry to the genus Homo, right? So far, Australopithecus afarensis has always been considered as the ancestor of all species that came after 3 million years. But now that we have multiple species living at the same time with Australopithecus afarensis, we ask this question then, who is the ancestor of the genus Homo? So this is really important discovery and I mean, After this, I don't think there is any doubt why continued fieldwork research is really important and finding new sites is really important. But you notice that every publication that comes on researching on human origins will always end the research paper with more fossils are needed, right? So yes, more fossils are needed because we we don't have enough sample for each human species that we have in the fossil record. And we also know that there are so many questions that remain to be answered, that, that remain unanswered, and we need answers for those questions. And the only way we can answer those questions is by increasing the sample size, by sampling larger populations of these early human ancestors. And the only way we can do that is by going out to the field and recovering uh, more fossils. There are also a number of unsampled time periods in the fossil record, and we need to fill those gaps, like what we did with the 3.6 to 3.9 million-year gap that was filled by discoveries at Oranza Mille. And there is also a need for refining the geological sequences in some of these uh, sites, because we have very good dates for certain horizons, but some of the horizons have a, a, a deep time represented between those Uh, dated horizons, and we need to refine the stratigraphy accordingly, and that can only be done by going out to the field and doing um, field research. And of course, field research is really important for uh, students, Um, it gives them the opportunity for hands-on experience, and this is part of, I think this this should be part of what they're trained for, like in terms of field work and how it's done. So there are so many advantages for going back to the field, finding more fossils, and also locating new sites that uh, will help us better understand our evolutionary history. So, when I consider all the trends that we're seeing today, um, particularly since uh, 2010, we, we, we see that there is this tendency in terms of decline in survey and exploration to locate new paleontological sites. Now, if we don't continue surveying and exploring for new sites, we're not going to be able to um, document some of these missing gaps in the fossil record. So the second one is we also see decline in funding for field-based human origins research, especially after 2010. There was an increase in, in, in the early 2000s or late 1990s and as a result, you've seen how many specimens, how many fossil hominins were identified in the 1990s and early 2000. So that was a really a good trend. But since after 2010, we see some decline in terms of funding for field-based uh, human origins research. And I also see that training of undergraduate students in the field seems to be declining. Uh, and that's not a good sign um, like the other ones that I mentioned earlier. So this is also something that we need to think about. So how can we move forward in human origins research? As we know, there is a there is, um, serious problem in terms of like what the trends are, what the current trends are. So the first thing is I think there should be a consensus among all stakeholders that human origins research cannot happen without the fossils that come from fieldwork. By stakeholders, I'm referring to all anthropologists, students, granting agencies, Private and federal granting agents all of this are included as you know stakeholders so this is something that we have to really understand that this is a critical part of human origins research I also think that we there is a need to invest in survey and exploration to locate new fossiliferous sites and of course we know the logistical challenges uh, and how expensive it is to actually go out and survey and explore to find new localities but I think the fact that we now have much sophisticated job special sciences. We can really incorporate new approaches from those sciences and um, kind of make the challenges much, much uh, smaller. And we also um, need to, as paleontologists, we need to um, consider field work as a major component of their students' training. Now, as a graduate student, I, I spent most of my time in the field. And honestly, everything that I know about funnel assemblages, everything that I know about geology, all of it was what I learned in the field, not in a classroom situation. So I believe that having graduate students trained in the field, not only helps them understand fieldwork methodology, but also helps them become holistic, uh, all around paleontologists who understand the, the, uh, the context of this early homes that we are also finding. So without continued fieldwork and recovery of more fossils, Um, without filling the temporal gaps in the fossil record, without refining the edges of the fossils we currently have in hand, I don't think we can fully understand our evolutionary history and how we became who we are today. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.